Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Happy Halloween. Later in the hour, we'll find out what we can learn from ghost stories. But first, last year, the Benton County Historical Society started offering ghost tours at the same site where they keep their archives. IPR producer Caitlin Troutman went to Benton to visit the Horridge House and learn the history behind it. I'm standing in front of the Horridge House in Vinton, Iowa, which is the location of the Benton County Historical Society's archives and museum. The house was built in 1859, and in 2021, the Historical Society started offering ghost tours of the house. And that's what we're going to check out today. Hello, are you Katie? I am. I just have a, <laughs> my sister and I are sitting in here and I put on one of our equipment. To sure. Spit out some words to see if we could get anyone to chat. Katie Hopkins is on the board of the Benton County Historical Society, and she is also one of the paranormal tour managers. Uh, My professional background in the paranormal field, um, I've been in the field for about 12 years. I started working at a museum up in Waterloo, Iowa, called the Grout Museum. I was the manager of the Rensselaer Russell House, and I would sit there hours upon hours and hear voices, hear footsteps, things like that. So that's really what got my start. But I do have a bachelor's degree in history. So that's really what drew me in, got me interested. Um, And that would be my professional background in, in the paranormal field, at least. And I've just been researching and investigating ever since. Yeah, I'm really interested in this intersection of history and supernatural uh, things that are very hard to like prove historically. Um, It sounds like you also are interested in that. It sounds like you're very, you found like a really good (laughs) balance of your talents. Yeah, I always tell people history is very important when it comes to the paranormal. One of my favorite quotes is from a good friend of ours named Jeff Belanger. He's the writer and researcher for Ghost Adventures. He's done tons of research himself on the paranormal field. And one of my favorite quotes from him is that history is just one big ghost story and that it's just history demanding to be remembered. It's coming to the present day saying, remember me, this is what I did, uh, tell my story. And so that's one of my favorite quotes to tell people is we wouldn't have ghost stories and we wouldn't have that if we didn't have history. Katie and her husband, Josh, who also gives tours at the Horridge House, do pretty regular investigations, and they keep people updated on paranormal activity updates on their Facebook page. Uh, My sister-in-law and mother-in-law, they were here recently, and they were in the basement, and they heard a growl uh, come across, I think they said, the ghost box. And so that kind of caught their attention a little bit, and uh, they didn't really care for it. So they came upstairs, and they went all the way upstairs to the master bedroom, uh, forgot to lock the basement door. So they sent my brother-in-law down to lock the basement door. But she was sitting in here and thought she heard a male's voice, and then she thought she heard a knock. And so they went and looked, and the basement door um, had been unlocked again. Obviously, not everyone's going to buy into paranormal beliefs. Not everyone believes in ghosts. I personally uh, don't. I'm kind of a skeptic. (laughs) But I feel like there's still so much we can learn. Can you talk to me about that? Talk to me about why this is so valuable from a historic perspective. 
even if you're a skeptic. (laughs) Yeah, we get skeptics all the time. Uh, So it's not anything new for us to hear somebody say, well, I don't believe in ghosts. I always just encourage people to keep an open mind. And if you can keep an open mind, you may have an experience, you may not. All right. Now, uh, can we start the tour? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So right now we are in the parlor of the Horridge House. We're to entertain their guests and different things like that in here. This is probably the one of the most active locations of the house um, when you come to Paranormal Wise. Uh, but this is uh, the main parlor where people would have just been entertained and they would have sat and had their, you know, their whatever kind of drink they were having. Uh, and so this would have been that area. Uh, the Horridge House was built in 1859 by a man named Dr. Klingen. He only maybe lived here for a year or so, and then he sold the house to Willis Franklin Williams. And then in 1869... He sold the house to George and Elizabeth Horridge. Uh, I'll say Elizabeth Rock Horridge, uh, and I'll go a little bit more into that here in a minute. But uh, he sold the house to them, and they lived here up until their deaths. Um, And then uh, George and Elizabeth, they had known each other for quite some time. Elizabeth, uh, her first husband, was Augustus Herman Rock, and that was George's business partner. Um, He passed away in 1861. We don't know what from. Uh, it's We've tried to find death records and things like that, but they're not existent for him. Um, and then about a year, year and a half later, he married Elizabeth. Take with it what you will. Uh, George and Elizabeth then were married up until April of 1900. Elizabeth died in 1900 down in Lake Charles, Louisiana. They had a summer home down there. After she did pass, though, George and a few of Elizabeth's children that she had had with her first husband went down, got her body, brought it back uh, from the... or by the train, so just right outside you can see the railroad tracks, Uh, but they did bring her body back and her funeral was held in the home. After Elizabeth passed away, George then married Carrie Smith. You can see her up on the mantle there, and she is standing in front of the fireplace in that one picture, Uh, so it's kind of cool to see her standing exactly where kind of we are right now. Uh, Carrie was 30 years younger than George, so when they got married, George was probably, let's see, They got married in 1901. George was probably in his 50s or 60s. And Carrie, yeah, would have been in her 20s or 30s at that point. Um, Carrie's mother lived here with them towards the end of her life. and Her name was Catherine. And in the room right behind you is where she died. Uh, She was just elderly. She was only four years older than George. It's kind of a weird dynamic. But she uh, was in her 90s, about 94, when she passed away. And then a few years later, George passed away. George did die in the house as well. We do feel that George probably did die in that room because he wouldn't have been going up and down the stairs anymore, being almost 97 when he died. And I guess a little ending where when George died, he would have passed away in 1933, or 1930, excuse me. And he was the, his uh, funeral was held in the Presbyterian church just right across the, the parking lot here. And then Carrie, she was the last one to carry on through the Horages, and she ended up falling down the stairs in September of 1948. Did not die from that, but she did go to Virginia Gay Hospital, and about four months later did die, results of the fall. She had a lot of internal bruising, and then also uh, her kidneys became inflamed, and she passed away. After Carrie passed, it was a duplex for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Family lived down here and a family upstairs. And then in this 1971, the Historical Society took over. And then you have the kitchen. We did have a team come in and say that they kept getting in. They were saying they were in the kitchen. It was all over a, uh, I believe it was a ghost box. They kept saying, I'm in the kitchen and I'm the business partner. 
business partner would have been Augustus Herman Rock. So um, I don't know. And they kept telling them to leave, but every ghost tells you to leave. So, <laughs> so how, how do you hear or hear that? I don't know. Like, yeah, you know. a ghost box um, is technically a radio. And so it looks like a radio and it scans through different frequencies of a milligauss. So it goes really fast and um, it creates a white noise. And they're said to be able to speak through that white noise. I can play it for you here after a little bit, yes, but, um, <laughs> what was that? After getting creeped up by the ghost box and finishing the tour of the Horridge house, I was able to sit down with Katie and ask her about how these tours came to be. So you were not on the board when initially you suggested they start doing uh, ghost tours at Mm -hmm. Horridge House. So how did that come about? What did that uh, process look like? Yeah, so I have been involved in some way, shape, or form uh, with the Benton County Historical Society since about 2018. I have a few books, and the president of the Historical Society had found me on, I believe it was Facebook, and asked if I would do a presentation about my book, sell my books, just for a fundraiser that they could do. And I, of course, said yes, because all of the proceeds did go to the Historical Society. And so we had been investigating um, in the area as well. And when COVID hit, we knew the Historical Society took a hit as well. A lot of museums did. And we wanted to do what we could to try and just keep the lights on at, at the Horridge House in the train depot. And we told Sharon, the, the board of directors president, paranormal field doesn't have to stop. You know, we can still allow investigations or you could allow investigations and um, be safe and not have to worry about COVID. And she said, yeah, that's that's great. She was really open to it and knew that it would be a good thing for not only the Benton County Historical Society, but the community of uh, Vinton, bringing in people from all over the country, really. And, and it was just something that I knew she was open to and the board was open to. So we suggested it and we had experience running locations and uh, we were able to get it launched. Why did you think this was a good site for a ghost tour? Was it because of the age or did you have some other reason? Yeah, it's kind of a, a slew of things. Um, definitely the history behind everything, not just the house, but the artifacts, the land. It just has a really deep history, really rich history. But also, we had investigated the Horridge House and had some experiences ourselves. We knew other people that had been in there before as well, and they had some great experiences. So we said, why not give it a shot? It's, you know, what, what's it going to hurt? So we opened it up and right away got a lot of interest. But uh, opening it up and, and whatnot and thinking it was a good spot, definitely, again, you know, the history and just the experiences that we have had, but also that um, others who had had the chance to be in there had. Whenever you have those things to tell others that want to investigate, they're always curious, too, and want to come see what happens. So uh, there was a mixture of things that, that we thought would be a good reason to open it up. All right. Now you've been doing these tours about a year and a half. So I have a feeling you've probably seen a pretty wide array of folks who come uh, ranging from, you know, total skeptic to 100 percent all in. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, why do you think so many people come to these ghost tours? Why do you think this is something that people are so interested in? 
Yeah, I think it's because it's just a neat feeling to to have something happen and you can't explain it. And so it, I think, you know, why people continue to do it too and go to all these, you know, different locations is because every location is different. Every location has a different haunting. Every location has different spirits. So you're never going to get the same kind of, of experience. You can't predict what's going to happen. And I think that's what keeps people on their toes and keeps wanting them to continue in the field. Katie Hopkins is on the board of the Benton County Historical Society, and she is one of the paranormal tour managers with the Historical Society. Katie, thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. Katie Hopkins with producer Caitlin Troutman. To learn more about the Horridge House or set up your own tour, check out Benton County Historical Society Paranormal Tours on Facebook. Coming up, more ghost stories. If you go down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. If you go down in the woods today, you better go in disguise. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, ghost stories. In a few minutes, historian Leo Landis will be here with some of Iowa's most enduring ghost stories and legends, and we'll talk about what we can learn from them. But Adam Soto is here now. He's just published a new collection of ghost stories. It's called Concerning Those Who Have Fallen Asleep. And while some of the stories include good old-fashioned ghosts, his characters also find themselves haunted in different ways. Adam Soto is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, who lives in Austin, Texas. Hello, Adam. Hi, Charity. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Have you always been interested in ghost stories? I think so. Um, I think like uh, a lot of young people um, kind of brushing with brushes with the supernatural have always sort of like fascinated me. And I've always um hunted down, you know, different books when I was younger, you know, those scary stories to tell in the dark. And then as I got a little older, graduating to some of the the classic horror by like Stephen King and the like. So when did you start writing ghost stories? Well, unbeknownst to me, I started writing ghost stories um, maybe about eight years ago while taking breaks from writing a novel. Um, and I was writing short stories um, and, and sending them out and publishing them as I was taking breaks um, from the larger work. And then it wasn't until about two years ago that I turned and looked at, you know, this body of work that I had produced um, and, and realized that there was a common thread between them. And that was uh, the presence of, of a ghost or a haunting. Um, so, so you were, you were doing this unintentionally? On. Yes. Yeah, I really, yeah, I really, yeah. And I mean, you know, some, some of the stories, you know, it would, it would be a very like a little buried element that I realized, oh wait, this character who is, who is gone, no longer with us has suddenly come back and is running through the woods. And it was just sort of this one image that didn't really, you know, connect very much to, to other parts of the, the plot. 
And I, but then I just said, wow, I, you know, as, as early as, you know, 2015 or 14, there I was, I was, I was putting ghosts in there. So have you uh, psychoanalyzed yourself on this? Why do you think that is? Um, <laughs> you know, I think I'm, a, I think like a lot of uh, people right now, uh, you know, I've, I've been haunted for, for a little while now. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that uh, we could definitely get into more of it, but you know, the statistics are there. Um, you know, some, some polls, some recent polls have suggested that, you know, over 50% of Americans believe in ghosts now. Um, and that's, that's up, you know, neither nearly, uh, 400% since the late 1970s, Wow. you know, and so being a member of the millennial generation that has, that has played a big part in that, in that big boom, you know, in addition to the, to Gen Z, you know, I, I think that I, you know, I'm just, I'm just riding the zeitgeist, really. You know, the ghosts are here and now we're here for them as well. (laughs) Well, I don't personally believe in ghosts, but I definitely do believe that people and places can be haunted. And your ghost stories certainly expand the idea of haunting. Mm -hmm. So what do you what do you think it means to be haunted? Um, You know, I think that in a in a sort of traditional sense, you know, when we go back to thinking about the sort of creation of the modern haunted house story, which is, you know, sometime in the late 19th and early 20th century, you know, I think that we're looking at a lot of narratives that are about um, sort of something very personal, something about an individual ghost seeking a particular uh, revenge Right. Um, you know, somebody inherits their great grandfather's old home, you know, and then they're 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 living in this sort of decrepit mansion. And then they realize that their great grandfather, you know, committed some heinous act. And now the ghost is 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 kind of trying to get back uh, at, at the at the great grandchild. Right. And it's and so it's a little bit it's a little bit more personal. But what I think that since then, um, thinking about the sort of inheritances that we that we uh, share as whole cultures or as whole societies, right? Um, one of the things that I kept coming back to is 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 climate change, and how climate change is is some is an inheritance that you know everybody who who walks the earth today, you know, we share that, um, and that is you know a a, a and the earth's past grievances kind of making themselves known. Um, and so I, I started thinking about hauntings in this much more expansive and global way. Um, and, and, and the way that uh, institutions um, and, and cultural decisions, wars uh, sort of are lingering and we're dealing with them now as a people collectively. Yeah. You have a a story that you've been uh, sharing with a lot of people on your book tour called "Casting the Ghost." Would you Would you read just an excerpt from that for us? Just a couple of minutes. Yeah, that sounds great. Great. Um, so, "Casting the Ghost" is a play without dialogue. Casting the Ghost, a play. Characters, the ghost. The set contains a student desk inside of which, never seen, sleeps a green banana cockroach and the river of forgetfulness, intensely neglected, pretty much non-existent. The stage lights are kept off, so nothing is visible. Notes. 
The ghost should be played by someone everyone already knows, so that when they appear on stage, their implied death is meaningful to everyone, including the audience members who aren't paying any attention. The ghost must be empathized with easily. The ghost can't easily give away the ending. It must be willing to wear a costume of a questionable shape. The ghost cannot be a man. It's okay if the ghost is a man. There must be at times at which the audience is confused if Demi Moore is the real ghost. <laughs> the ghost needn't know how to operate a pottery wheel, but they must know how to lay ceramic tile to affect the death of the father currently working himself to death, retiling the downstairs bathroom. The ghost will be very old, but die from something they didn't have to, which really is a shame. The ghost will maintain a careful distance between itself and its subjects so as not to frighten them. The ghost must have a killer jump scare. The ghost cannot be a child. We don't have the budget to cover that kind of insurance. The ghost can be religious but not spiritual in the least. The ghost cannot be a name, after all. We don't have the casting budget either. The ghost cannot have a name. It'll have shown up on the ramparts more times than I can count. Pain will not rest until the ghost is exercised. The ghost will be exercised and the land will be bathed in healing. It might represent serfdom and or slavery. It will know the story of the actor who lost his memory while performing the role of old fears. The ghost will be a reckoning. The ghost will not be denied. If played by a woman of color, she will not be your salvation. The ghost will be well-versed in ghosting and haunting. All actors auditioning for the role must be equity actors. Bring your cards, as your devices will not work in the afterlife. Paper exists in the afterlife. When the ghost departs the stage, it will be sorely missed. The ghost must wash before each dressing. The ghost cannot remember its life. The ghost will not believe in ghosts. The ghost will not be so easily convinced. It must be fluent in languages. Payments will be received upon completion of the run in the form of books the ghost has not has read but cannot remember reading. The ghost will not, under any circumstance, reach out and touch the audience. The ghost cannot be a manifestation of the collective unconscious. It will have been a real person, with a real life. It will refuse to be put to rest. There will be a hint of the plane ride from the island to the mainland and the doubts it collected in the air sickness bag and every line it delivers. Left to its own devices, it will wing it on stage. There will not be enough time for a resurrection. It will bear a bottomless regret. It will speak to your workplace environment and your relationship with your mother. In a voice some will call sing-song, it will revise your thinking around what you consider the smallness of life. You will remember it worked as a city bus driver, noticing that your mother would ride with you and your sister to school each morning only to disembark for another bus headed in the opposite direction for work. It will have assured your mother that it would get her girls to school safely without her. The first morning you rode the bus without your mother, it told you to take the seat directly behind them, which is where you sat, riding the bus, for years. Watching you in their mirror, they asked you and your sister no more than three questions every ride. You never felt uncomfortable or strange, but you also never felt curious enough to ask them anything about themselves. You assumed they rode through the night. You pictured the bus going and going. They were younger than your mother, but behind the wheel of that giant bus, they were as confident as Hercules. One morning, the city woke up tearing itself apart. The bus driver said they would stop for anyone as long as they respected the bus. Men and women, bleeding from their heads, boarded and respected the bus. At school, half the class didn't show up. 
Outside your apartment, the driver waited to see you make it into the building. When you moved away to another city, you forgot about them. Older now, with children, you look to your mother and ask, how did you do all of this on your own? And she will say, I didn't. I had everyone. Remember that bus driver? You will look upon the ghost on stage and picture it behind the wheel of a great bus, the kind with a windshield shaped like a scuba diving mask. You will wonder how you'd come to feel so alone. The ghost won't be doing it for laughs. It's not here to tug at your heartstrings. You'll think, are they giving it away for free? You'll think mother, brother, the girl who died with her whole family on a road trip to Orlando spring break of your junior year of high school, the man you saw lying on the sidewalk and called 911 for but did not stick around to see if he was okay, but something in the performance will tell you it may not be who you think it is. You'll dedicate the rest of your life to a work of art of your own, depicting every person the ghost could have been. After Giotto, after Grunwald, after Van Eyck, Jan, and Hubert, you'll choose to make a polyptic and paint an altarpiece of many, many panels, faces and faces, ghost after ghost, cast in little gold frames. That is Adam Soto reading a little bit of his story, casting the ghost from his collection concerning those who have fallen asleep. And Adam, I mean, you you give us an idea of the diversity of ghosts and haunting that you have in your stories by by basically in that story telling us that the ghost can be anyone. But yeah. also, um, some of your stories are extremely realistic and and feel very contemporary, very in this moment with that bit of supernatural element, which almost to me echoed a little bit of, I, I think about the Victorian novels like Jane Eyre, where it's a straightforward story until all of a sudden there's ESP, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, did you, did you want to make some of your stories feel like they could absolutely be happening right now and to us? Yeah, yes. I think that as entertaining um, and moving that a, as a, as a full-blown uh, ghost story, horror story can be, uh, there's just something so eerie and 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 beautiful about a, a subtle ghost story that that you could imagine actually taking place in your own life um and and where you know your confrontation with uh with the supernatural is somewhat benign um uh and and and, and to be able as a reader to sort of imagine yourself into those into those scenarios and think you know yeah i guess you know if i if i did have to you know just go and pick up the kids after school, you know, an encounter with a ghost, you know, as I was heading out the door, like might not slow me down, you know, the kids still need to get, you know, picked up or something like that. So I, I was thinking about that intersection quite a bit and also thinking about how, you know, reading about the, the encounters and the way that people live with ghosts um, today, again, it's just, Many of these, many of these individuals who come forth and say that they've had some sort of experience, um, you know, it's not spectacular. In fact, what makes their story seem more believable is the fact that it's so incredibly pedestrian, um, and that they're not frightened of ghosts, but rather that they've just had these really kind of like ni- nice conversations with ghosts in the past, or a ghost has helped them with something. Um, and I th- it's just a different way of thinking about hauntings and 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 the supernatural. 
I'm talking with Adam Soto. He's the author of the collection Concerning Those Who Have Fallen Asleep. And I want to bring Leo Landis into the conversation as well. Leo Landis, state curator with the State Historical Society of Iowa. Welcome back to the show, Leo. Leo, are you there? I am, Charity. Ghostly presence. That's right. (laughs) right. Great to be with you. (laughs) Wonderful to have you here. And it was interesting to me thinking about some of the things that that Adam was just saying about maybe we're living in a a time that is particularly prone to belief in ghosts or the presence of ghost stories. There are other periods through history, Leo, where this belief has been prevalent. And and one of those was in the 1840s. Tell me a little bit about this spiritualist movement of the 1840s and 1850s. Sure. It had come out of uh, the Second Great Awakening, which was a period of religious excitement, uh, especially Western New York uh, in the 1820s and 30s. And there were a pair of sisters, Kate and Maggie Fox, who uh, Maggie being 14, Kate being a, a, the younger sister, uh, just a little southeast of Rochester, who claimed that a peddler had been murdered in the home they were living in and that they could communicate with him by hearing rapping noises. And it really did become a national phenomenon. And this is a, a period in 1848 where there's a lot of tension over slavery and women's suffrage and and other issues. So these times of uh, you know, confusion or disruption in, in society, especially in the United States, are times when, when ghost stories and, and spiritualism or paranormal activities get a lot of, uh, of attention. And so uh, really starts to take off in the late 1840s with, with Maggie and Kate Fox. And they have national tours there, or not national tours, but they're based in New York and, and hosting events as 14 and 11-year-old girls. So. Oh, wow. Major, major period in American history. And the most, probably most well-known person who advocated for spiritualism and engaged in these practices would be Mary Todd Lincoln, right? Correct. And, and, you know, this is the theme I think that Kate and and Adam have alluded to as well, that – where there is death and especially someone who's younger or an untimely uh, death of someone. And and that was certainly the case with the Lincoln family with both their son Willie at the White House in 1862, but also their uh, other son, Eddie, who had died before that. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln wants to communicate with their son Willie and so ties into the spiritualist movement and their are, you know, somewhere around eight seances that she hosts at the White House in the Red Room and that the president uh, on occasion is believed to have attended as well. So, you know, the the White House was a a place of seances in the 1860s. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more ghost stories in just a moment. Leo Landis is here, state curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa, and Adam Soto, author of the collection Concerning Those Who Have Fallen Asleep. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about ghost stories. With me, Adam Soto, who has just published a collection of ghost stories. It's called Concerning Those Who Have Fallen Asleep. It expands our ideas of what a ghost or a haunting maybe could be beyond uh, the spirit of someone who has passed to perhaps uh, an invisible force that we all walk alongside, like climate change, for example. Also with me, Leo Landis, state curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa. And all right, just before the break, we were talking about the possibility that the the rise of spiritualism in the middle of the 19th century, in the 1840s through about 1860 or so, there may be a little bit of parallel between that period of time and the time that we're living in now. Adam, you pointed out earlier that the belief in ghosts uh, seems to be be on the rise at this point in time. And I can think of a number of, of other parallels between these two times. But um, before we, we kind of dig more into the, the serious part of ghost stories and what they might tell us about that, I mean, we also just love them. And Leo, you are a historian and every museum has a, a ghost story, right? Just about. If, if I, you know, I, I'm a central Iowa native and but have worked across the Midwest. And, and I think at every museum I have worked or visited, you, you hear connections much like the, the Horridge House. And, and there's always a certain group of visitors who uh, especially around this time of year, want to know stories around, uh, you know, are the, have you had any experiences with ghosts? And I think that is part of the, you know, broader understanding of wanting to connect with history and, and know what happened in the house. And so if there was ever any sort of event that, that might cause paranormal activity or supernatural uh, activity, people are interested just because there are lots of things that are unexplained in culture. Absolutely. Well, and uh, Leo, this this takes you beyond your um, professional purview here, but why do you think we love these stories so much? It, it, sure. I mean, it, it does connect to American culture and history in a broader way that there are periods in United States history where you go through trauma as a nation, whether it be the Civil War or you know things like a typhoid epidemic or a cholera epidemic or a pandemic like we have. And so a lot of times these stories of hauntings or paranormal activity connect in those times and, and then just become embedded in the culture too. And so if there's an accidental death or an untimely death, trying to explain that in everyday life is is just part of the narrative that you know, is local or, or regional or national in, in basis. Right. Well, and Adam, when you were talking earlier, I mean, you got close to this idea that, that I think one of the reasons that we love ghost stories is we long for justice. We, we want scores to be settled, right? Adam, are you still there? Another ghostly presence. All right. Well, that's my personal theory. <laughs> I think that we do, uh, we do, um, we do want justice, and um, sometimes perhaps a, a ghost or a haunting is the only way we can get to that. Leo, I know that you have um, collected a few Iowa ghost stories, and w- one of the the threads that seems to run through a lot of them that a lot of them have something to do with bridges. Tell me about this. Sure. And and a lot of it is, I mean, bridges go back to stories like The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which, you know, isn't uh, a ghost story per se. It's just a ghost legend the way that Washington Irving writes it in 1820. But with the number of bridges and, and crossings over 
bodies of water, streams and rivers across Iowa, that narrative really has a, a rich history in, in our state. So, you know, an example that uh, in doing research on Iowa ghost stories, finding one that uh, was published in 1893 connected to a bridge over Lizard Creek in Webster County, Terra, which is a now abandoned town west of Fort Dodge. Uh, the story was that there was a railroad worker who was using a steam-driven implement called a pile driver, which puts the pilings in for bridges, and this was a bridge over Lizard Creek. And that that <clears throat> excuse me, that man was uh, killed using that pile driver, and then through the 1890s, there were reports from railroad workers of you know using a hand car on that railroad line and seeing unexplained locomotive lights and and pulling off and then never seeing a locomotive come by or uh, hearing a clanking and rattling sound as you approached that bridge that sounded like a pile driver. And then when you got to the bridge, there was nothing there other mm. than the bridge itself. So those stories of unexplained noises, unexplained uh, symbols or, or lights especially is one that, that uh, persists through a lot of ghost stories. Let's talk about the story of the the ghost story from Roseman Bridge in Madison County. I know that's one that a lot of Iowans are familiar with. I had a vague memory of it when you brought it up, but tell me a little bit about what, how the story goes. Sure. And Roseman Bridge, of course, is the bridge that's featured in the film and uh, novella Bridges of Madison County by Robert James Waller. And so this is a story that, that appears in the, the 1960s, but goes back to the 1890s. And the story is that uh, two groups of men, uh, posses, are chasing an escapee from the Madison County Jail in 1892. They get to Roseman Bridge, one group on each side of the bridge over the Middle River, and they know they have him trapped. And so the man leaps into the, the escapee, leaps into the rafters of the bridge. The men converge, chasing him converge, and they don't see him. And he's disappeared. And, you know, he's yelled wildly and they know he's around there, but he is nowhere to be found. And, and so some excitement takes place. Uh, one of the other men shoots uh, one of the other posse members. And so the, the story today is, you know, did the man drown in the river, in, in the middle river? Uh, but if you go over Roseman Bridge, uh, you might still hear unexplained footsteps. You can hear wild and raucous laughter from the roof. And so that the, the rafters of that bridge may have some haunting connected to it. So this, uh, I, I already shared my uh, theory earlier that one of the reasons we love ghost stories is because we want wrongs to be righted. We want justice. This plays into another one of my theories, though, Leo, which is when something goes terribly wrong, if we blame it on the supernatural, then at least that obscures the story. So, I mean, one of the people shot another member of the posse. It's, it was kind of like, oh, look over there. <laughs> right. And, and, and part of that story on that one, too, Charity, getting at your point is that uh, they statement was, well, that man must have been innocent if he escaped somehow uh, because he was never found. There was no body ever found. So, you know, 
whether he was haunting there still or what the case was, is that uh, we, we must have been after innocent man, an innocent man or an innocent man escaped. So there you go. Right. Well, we do have Adam Soto back. And uh, Adam, I don't know if you were able to hear my theory earlier about us loving ghost stories because we have this longing for justice, for things to be set right. I can think of some people that I would like to be haunted, for example. I mean, Adam, do you think that there there's something to that, this idea that this is is a way that we can right a wrong even after the ship has sailed. Yeah, I think that's funny that you mention yeah people that you that you wouldn't mind being haunted or haunting. That was a big uh, question on uh, during my book tour. Yeah, I think that you know something that goes goes beyond the the earthly realm and the limitations that we have in our own. Uh, justice systems or the things that, you know, we are capable of completing within our own lifetimes. The idea that there's something that transcends those limitations, you know, it's in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's what we look to, you know, uh, God or gods for in other contexts, right? That, you know, something went wrong in a lot in during life and, and that ultimately somebody will pay, pay the price later. And so I think that it's, it's operating in a, in a somewhat similar way, yes. We also were talking about bridges being a very common uh, setting for ghost stories. And Adam, you also included water in in one of your hauntings, in in one of your stories. There was a very cold lake. Uh, do, what do you think that connection is about? Um, I think, yeah, you know, sh- shorelines, uh, bridges, um doorways, you know, these are all, these are thresholds between two different spaces, right? And, um, you know, we, we, we can even call them liminal spaces in that when you stand, you know, directly in the middle of these two worlds, you're sort of paused or frozen between two different phases. Um, and really, you know, that's, that's what a ghost is, right? A ghost is stuck between uh, life and death. And as sort of condemned at times to repeating uh, their own death over and over. And sometimes that's the way that they haunt a space. But I think that, yeah, bridges, um, uh, they, they pop up very often because they're just such a, there's such a beautiful metaphor for that um, transcendent space, right? Leaving one world and entering another. Um, and, you know, I, they're also, uh, dangerous spaces right like was and that foggy before. and yeah <laughs> right? lots of things yeah. can happen uh, leo speaking of, of places like places where people pass through um hotels are, are one of those places that are often considered to be haunted and you found a story about a haunted stagecoach stop tell us about that one sure uh, this one is uh, a stagecoach stop that uh was in the Iowa County, Tama County, uh, Iowa County area, and the the story was that uh, uh, Czech family uh, had uh, purchased this home, but people in the neighborhood had had always had children wouldn't go near it. Uh, that the adults in the community knew that that 
something nefarious had happened there and the Czech family that buys it then decides to uh, rest restore it and, and actually demolish it. And, but they had never had any uh, events, and this is the 19-teens, 1920s, uh, had never had any supernatural experiences. But then as uh, they're doing the work and they do find some human remains. And so the whole idea of haunting at that space in the Tama County, Iowa County, the, the Czech neighborhoods there uh, come back to the, the four in that neighborhood and that, you know, that a, a stagecoach stop was a place that had a lot of transient uh, visitors and that so something might have happened in the past there in the 1850s or 1860s at that location. And so again, unexplained or untimely uh, events that could happen, almost Hotel California, you can check in, but you can't check out sort of uh, experience. So that's, yeah, that's one connected to a stagecoach stop in uh, Tama County. Right. Well, and it makes you wonder about the origin of that story. Again, was a ghost story told to deflect from something that did happen there that people didn't want to talk about? Right. And, and that was the, the there had been some knowledge in the community that something did happen there. But at least in the research I did, there was no real explanation of, of you know, maybe a, a traveler had, had been killed and, and buried. That was kind of the legend that happened uh, in the neighborhood, but there was no documentation. And so uh, the, the idea of the unexplained continues to be part of the narrative con con connected to these ghost stories. We talked about earlier that pretty much every museum seems to have a ghost story. I think particularly museums that used to be houses. That feels like, like something people, they'll learn the history of the house and then they want to go farther. Do you have an example of that? I know like the Salisbury House in Des Moines uh, has, a, has a haunting, right? Uh, that was always the story. I worked there for almost three years. I never had... Uh you know, an experience, but I, I had co-workers and, and uh, people who had had experiences where felt coldness in spaces or that there were doors that would shut unex in an unexplained manner as you were walking by uh, in the second floor hallways. And so the idea that either uh, maybe a member of the help that had been a member of the, the Weeks family, the home was built by Carl and Edith Weeks in the 1920s, and so that that was the the explanation was that maybe one of the help uh, was still haunting mm -hmm. Salisbury House or someone from England because much of the house was moved over from England. So did the co ghost come over? <laughs> it's a great question. I grew up in a very old farmhouse. I can tell you. Well, I never thought it was haunted. There are lots of cold spots and <laughs> lots of creaking and lots right. of breezes. So we only have a couple of minutes left and. Um, uh, we were talking earlier about some of the reasons that people might tell ghost stories. We also love them. We love to be scared. We love to get goosebumps. These are stories that are fun to share with other people on a stormy night or sitting around a campfire. But I'm curious, Adam, um, before we run out of time, do you think that there's something... That, that's almost therapeutic about these kinds of stories, something healthy about ghost stories and, and a reason that we turn to them. I mean, I think that it, many, you know, many of them allude to um, some sort of cultural artifact, um, sort of some sort of shared uh, cultural identity. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's very common that, an older member of the community will be, you know, telling a story from, 
from when they were young. Uh, I know my, my dad certainly told my brother and me many, many different stories about uh, strange encounters that he had in the Campo in Mexico. Um, and, you know, that was not a place that he was able to really share with us um, after he moved to the United States. And so those stories of magic and wonder and horror and terror were all ways of, for him to share a part of his childhood and all of the stories that he had been told when he was younger um, and that, you know, in our Midwestern suburban context, you know, for my brother and I, it was really, it was really special to know that, in, that we were connected to that world. Um, in addition to the, I think, warnings that they all came with, which was like, you know, mind your elders and don't right. go over there unattended. <laughs> you know, all of the other little lessons that we, you know, the boogeyman that keeps all of the children safe. Right, the morality of the story. So it really helped you create a relationship with a place that you couldn't yeah. visit. Yes. And Leo, we're, we're nearly out of time, but uh, what do you think? What is the value of these stories in 30 seconds? Sure. They, they certainly do reinforce uh, cultural values of wanting to remember the dead or people who have you know, gone before us, but also, as, as you have alluded to, giving a, a chance to uh, be warnings or cautionary tales and, and then just the resilience you get from, from understanding the past, too. So I think you know, there's the scariness, but also the, the resilience that it helps build. Leo Landis, thank you. You are welcome. Leo Landa, State Curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa. Adam Soto, thank you. Thank you. Adam Soto is the author of the collection Concerning Those Who Have Fallen Asleep. Have a happy Halloween. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.